one night just spend time singing and praying and Father, we thank you for this evening. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to look at your word, to learn more from it. So we pray that you might help us to do that tonight as we uh, take a look at the life of Messiah this evening. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, just before I get started, uh, what time is it? Oh, what time is it? Okay, it's, yeah, there you go. Uh, I just, I just wonder. I remember when we started in a new building in one of our many buildings, and when I got up to speak there in the front pew, there was this big clock, you know. So I didn't know if they were giving me a message or not. I, it wasn't like I was used to being particularly long in my presentations, but it was just that they didn't know where to put the clock, you know. Not that we paid much attention to it anyway, but it was just one of those things. It's great to see you, Jody. You're feeling pretty good, huh? Yeah, yeah, and it's great to have you here, that's for sure. Well, if you have your harmonies, page 44. Oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> you know, no, 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 you know. Uh, you don't want to do that. But uh, I'm not sure why, but... Well, I don't know about that, but yeah, take my time. Um, but I haven't speaking, been speaking too long on Sundays, have I? You know, you can certainly let me know that. Where's the Larry? Nobody's speaking. <laughs> there you go. Well, right. Wow, we're still getting out this early. Yikes! You know. Well, I'll tell you. Um, perhaps the greatest speech. I don't know, maybe that's an overstatement, but a very good speech uh, is one of the shortest speeches, right? The Gettysburg Address. And when you think what Abraham Lincoln said in the space of, what, two minutes maybe? Of course, you know that that was preceded by Everett. The only reason I remember his name, Senator, I think he's Senator of Massachusetts. Am I right, Mitch? By the way, I have more Mitch stories to tell. Are you okay? Are you okay with that? <laughs> He's, you know, he's so much fun. I just think he's amazing. But anyway, um, I forget his first name. Edward Everett. And I think he was senator of Massachusetts at the time. I don't think governor. But in any case, the only reason I remember him is because we lived in a town not far from a town named after him. But he spoke for two hours before Lincoln spoke. And the thing that is amazing about that is you didn't even know there was a guy named Everett, right? Who remembers, we didn't even know he existed, let alone spoke at the same occasion. But we all know the Gettysburg Address, you know. Yeah, so you don't necessarily need to say a lot in order to say something pretty potent. Um, So I've always thought about that, you know, cut right to the chase. Um. In any case, we rarely do that on Wednesday nights, though. But here we are in paragraph 50. Uh, On your outline, just so that we can go back so we're in the right spot here, we are on Roman numeral 2, if I'm not mistaken, the authentication of the king. And under Roman numeral 2, we are under capital B, the authority of the king, which is on page 4 of your outline. And we are under, uh, under... Category B, 
uh, letter B, number 13, the Messiah's authority over the Sabbath. We looked at page 49. There were three Sabbath controversial moments. The first was the healing of a paralytic on the Sabbath. And now we're going to look on... We're going to look at the controversy over the picking of grain by the disciples on the Sabbath and then the healing of a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Three Sabbath controversies that were meant to um, cause a distinction to be made between Yeshua's teaching and the teaching of the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the oral traditions that they had created uh, at that time. So, paragraph 50, we have the controversy over grain. And here, what transpires is a bringing to the fore of four Pharisaic, Mishnaic, Rabbinic regulations that were broken on this Sabbath day. So, if we look at Mark's account, Uh, We read that, and it came to pass, chapter 2, verse 23, it came to pass that he was going, Yeshua was going on the Sabbath, walking on the Sabbath day through the cornfields. Well, that's, you know, King James, Old English, for wheat fields. And we find that his disciples began to pluck the ears of grain. Matthew's account tells us the same thing. They began to pluck the ears of grain. Luke's account in chapter 6 tells us it came to pass on the Sabbath as he was going through the wheat fields, his disciples plucked the ears of grain, they ate, they also rubbed them in their hands. Now this is what was going on. First of all, when the, fa- when the disciples took the wheat off the stacks, they were guilty of reaping. Guilty of reaping. On the Sabbath. Remember, this is their understanding. The law doesn't say anything about this. The law says you're not to work, you're to rest. So the Pharisees, the Mishnahic law, the oral tradition wants to define what constitutes work. And they want to create this uh, fence, this hedge around the law, so that by not transgressing the hedge around the law, they would not violate the law itself. And by not violating the law itself, they would not incur God's wrath. Which wrath they incurred, which led them into exile. So to avoid being led in exile, they have to obey the law. To avoid failing to obey the law, they put a hedge around the law through their various rabbinic regulations, thinking that if they, if they didn't break those laws, they couldn't break the Mosaic law. So the idea of reaping on the Sabbath was a pharisaical injunction. And they understood that when you take the wheat off the stalk, you are reaping. So they were guilty of reaping. The second thing was that when they would take the wheat off the stalk, they would then rub the wheat so as to separate it from the chaff. They were then guilty of threshing by rubbing the wheat. When they blew on that which they have just rubbed in their hand to blow the chaff from the wheat, they were guilty of winnowing. And then when they swallowed the wheat, they would be guilty of storing all things that constituted work. Now in the Talmud, there's other kinds of examples. Some rabbis, not all, that was universal, but some rabbis taught you were not permitted to walk in wheat fields or the grass near wheat fields on the Sabbath. Though there was nothing wrong with walking, per se, or walking in a wheat field, per se, or in a grass 
grassy field near a wheat field, per se. Nevertheless, the rabbis, some rabbis said you should not do it. Why? Because you might see only a grassy field, but uh, what you might not see might be a stalk of wild wheat that was growing among the grass. And as you walked on the grass, you might step on that wheat, and then you might separate the wheat from the stalk, and you would be guilty of reaping. And then they said, if your foot came down and separated the wheat from the chaff, you would be guilty of threshing. And then as you walked further and you kept walking, and the hem of your garment caused a little breeze uh, to blow, which would separate the chaff from the wheat, now you were guilty of winnowing. And if some animals came, birds or rodents, squirrels or something, came and swallowed the grain that was remaining, you would then be guilty of storing. And so therefore, some rabbis argued, you ought not to walk on the grass on the Sabbath. That gives you an idea, though extreme, of what some of these rabbinic regula- how some of these rabbinic regulations were understood and practiced and why they became so controversial with respect to Yeshua, because he obviously is going to uh, disregard these kinds of things and do more than just disregard them. He's going to argue against them. It is these kinds of controversies that lead to the rejection of Messiah by the Jewish leaders. It's not the fact he didn't deliver us from the tyranny of Rome that you oftentimes hear. It's because he did not embrace the oral traditions that we believe were handed down by God to Moses, though not in written form. And so to the degree to which Yeshua opposes those oral traditions, they are opposed to him, and thus they reject him as their Messiah. For after all, the Messiah would certainly buttress their theological ideas and would be supportive of it, but he wasn't. Now, when Yeshua responds, he responds, uh, he makes six specific points. So, We'll take a look at this. First of all, now we're looking at Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12. He says in verse 3, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungry, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God, and he did eat the showbread, which it was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them that were with him, but only for the priests. Of course, the showbread were the 12 loaves of bread placed on the, uh, the table of showbread in the holy place. And so what we know is that David also broke this Pharisaic law by eating the showbread. The Mosaic law does not specify that non-Levites could not uh, eat the bread. We do know the Mosaic law, it never said that the Levites could not give the showbread to a non-Levite. But the Pharisees did teach that was the case. So... Being that it was not a violation of the Mosaic law, but a hedge around the law that the Pharisees made up, Messiah is saying one could not argue David was before the Mishnah. One might say, well, David was before the oral traditions were inscripturated or were written down, um, and therefore he wasn't aware of them. But one could not argue that way because the rabbis taught that the Mishnaic laws were handed down to Moses orally. So they certainly would have been in existence in an oral form by the Levites if that was true. And David, but what's happening here is that David was able to violate the oral law. 
if such a law actually did exist, and not be condemned by the Jewish leaders of his day. So if David could violate this oral tradition and not be guilty, how much more so could David's greater son violate this oral tradition and therefore not be guilty? And so that, I think, is what Yeshua is trying to argue. Right. There, lawful, he is saying, pharisaical, pharisaically lawful. What, what, what's not in there? Oh, it doesn't say that. He just, right. The reason why we know it's not Mosaic law, because the Mosaic law doesn't state that. And that's going back to what you said last time. Well, we'll get there, but, but my immediate pr- uh, response would be when they speak from Moses' chair, which was a chair in the synagogue, a little thing, they would be speaking mosaically, right? And there, they're on solid ground. Eight times. All right, wait a minute, back up. What are we saying? Right, he went into the tabernacle, right? The temple's not built yet. He's running from Saul. Okay. Yes, I think that's the parallel. I, I wouldn't want to bring Melchizedek into it because he, he's at the time of Abraham, right? Genesis 14. So he's precede, he precedes the Levites. You're suggesting that perhaps the... Oh, yeah, yeah. His priesthood is an eternal one. So And thus Messiah is a priest, not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedekian priest. Okay. Yeah. The Levitical priesthood is temporary. Well, uh, I can see where there there may be a slight subtle subtle kind of thing there. Correct. It doesn't say that. It, it's, it does not say that it can only be eaten by the priest. It says it is to be eaten by the priest, but it does not limit it to the priest. 
Pharisees did that. That's okay. <laughs> they were permitted to eat it, yeah. They didn't have to, but they were permitted to, just like from the sacrifices. No. We good? Okay. So, <clears throat> so the first response, and here's another interesting thing that I'm just thinking about. What's that? For now. Akshav. <laughs> I tried. You know. Okay. So, um, but here's the thought that occurred to me. When he, when he makes reference to David, he's referring to the former prophets. Right? Because that's Samuel or so. Right? So, uh, that's like he's quoting from the for, former prophets. Or making reference to a, past, uh, a historical account that is found among the former prophets. So let's just hold on to that for a minute as I'm just thinking about that. The second thing he says is found in Matthew 12, verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple, the word in is pretty uh, critical, in the temple profane the Sabbath and and are guiltless. So his second point is the law regarding Sabbath rest did not apply in every situation. So that it did not apply to those who worked inside the temple compound. Because they were working. And in fact, they worked harder on the Sabbath than they did on any other occasion. Because they're, giving, they're offering sacrifices all day. So he's saying the idea that the Sabbath is a reality unto itself is fallacious. Because there are situations in which the Sabbath rest is not applicable. Therefore, it's subservient in certain contexts. But here's, now here's another interesting point as I think about this. Is that the first episode, David, is from the former prophets. The second is from the Mosaic Law. Right? So we just, now this passage is taken right out of, or at least the, um, the connection is to what the Mosaic Law itself prescribes. The priests are to work, that is at least the priests that are appointed for that particular Sabbath day are working on the Sabbath and they are not resting. Yet they are not violators of the Sabbath because they are working. So the Sabbath commandment does not apply in every situation. So the third thing, but he quotes from the law now. So we get the Torah and we get the former prophets. Then he says, uh, and that's like from Book of Numbers, right? Then... In verse 6 of Matthew 12, he says, I say unto you that one greater than the temple is here. So here's his third argument. The Messiah is greater than the temple. Now, they may not believe him to be the Messiah, but he is. So he's greater than the temple. Therefore, work in the temple did not violate the Mosaic law. Therefore, the work one greater than the temple would permit would not violate the law either. Right? So if work in the temple did not violate the Mosaic law, and there is one greater than the temple, permits work to be done, that does not violate the law either, because he's greater than the temple. Um, now, to be sure, it broke Mishnaic law, oral law, Rabbinic law, Pharisaic law, those are all synonyms for the same entities. But it did not break Mosaic law. 
So you say it's very interesting. What Yeshua is really doing is he's demonstrating that rabbinic law, Mishnaic, now Pharisaic law is contrary to the biblical revelation. It is. And so in reality, it becomes a new religion among our people. And here's the thing. We then think being Jewish, being most Jewish perhaps, is that which comports with that, with that which Pharisaical, Mishnaic, oral, rabbinic tradition or law has established. And in that sense, we're wrong. Because it's contrary to the Mosaic law. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You know, um, for example, lighting candles on Friday night. There's nothing about that in the Mosaic law, right? There's nothing about it. It's become Jewish cultural. It's been a cultural manifestation of the Jewish community. I have no, I'm not arguing against that. But to take something that's of a cultural nature and elevating it to a legal status, now we're, we're moving far afield from biblical revelation, Mosaic law. And we're not as, as Jewish religiously as we ought to be. Just something that, you know, I think, there, I think there's truth to that. And so as Messianic Jews or as Gentiles in a Messianic congregation, we have to be mindful of these things. We do these traditions, but let us not think that we are somehow observing the law when we do them, you know, or that we are somehow behave, being more Jewish. We may be behaving more culturally Jewish, and there's nothing wrong with that, but let's at least recognize what it is we're doing for what it is and not imagine it as something else. Eitan, it's two. <laughs> no. There's no such thing. That's just a rabbinic thought. Or at least everything he told them that they wanted written is written down. Right? Is written. And that's what we are bound by. I guess the key word there is necessity. Um, certainly in some historical context, they had to be filled in. The priests had to figure out how do we get the, the animal up on the altar? Is there a prescribed manner? Once they prescribe a manner... If it can become traditional, but they ought not think they're violating the offering if somebody comes along, trips while he gets it up there, and then finally it gets up there. I guess they're, they're wrong. Right. It, they're not wrong to come up with a way, but they're wrong when they make their way legally binding. Because Yeshua is going to say in one instance, right, you violate the law by your, tra by your tradition. You don't just ignore the law. You're actually violating it by the traditions you established in that particular instance. So there's, very, there's great conflict here. There's no doubt about that. So the, third thing, now here, here's the, the, so the third thing is one greater than the temple. 
certainly can make the rules. Then uh, the fourth thing he says in verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Because they're condemning the disciples, but they're not guilty of anything. And they certainly wouldn't have of uh, pronounced them guilty if they had embraced the, the uh, prophetic utterance by uh, Hosea, I desire mercy. So what has he done? He's quoted from the former prophets, quoted from the latter prophets, and he's quoted from the Torah itself. Right? And then he says, number five, Matthew 12, verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he says the Messiah is the Lord of the Sabbath. He can allow what the Pharisees might disallow, and he can disallow what the Pharisees might allow. Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And then the last thing he says is recorded in Mark's account, chapter 2, verse 27. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So his final point is they have misconstrued the purpose of the Sabbath. Pharisaic law, by the way, taught that God made Israel for the Sabbath. And I think they take that from the fact that in Genesis 1, when it says on the seventh day God rested, but he doesn't establish the Sabbath there. He only establishes the basis for the Sabbath, which will come in Exodus 19 or 20. So, the Sabbath doesn't exist in Genesis. Only God resting on the seventh day exists. But the Sabbath as a commandment first appears in the Ten Commandments. So, what the rabbis want to say is the Sabbath already existed. He creates Israel for the Sabbath. Thus, elevating the Sabbath to a position that God never elevated it to. And thus they made Israel slaves of the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath being a means of rest for Israel. Right? Because there's no commandment even to worship on the Sabbath. The only command given is to rest. That's all that, that is said. So now, but what's kind of interesting about, he quotes from the former, the latter prophets, and the law. And so in effect... What he's doing in accordance with rabbinic tradition tradition, is he strengthens his argument by quoting from all spheres of the Hebrew Scriptures. So in other words, if he had quoted just from the Psalms, it's the Word of God, we understand, but from rabbinic tradition, quoting from the law trumps quoting from the Psalms because the law is greater in nature, say, than the Psalms are. Not more greatly inspired, don't misunderstand me, but they are the covenantal legislation for Israel to follow as opposed to the personal expressions of individuals' experiences and encounters with God. And so therefore, to quote from the law would be considered a higher, a greater argument than quoting from the Psalms. But what Yeshua does is he quotes not only from the law, but he supports it with quotes from the former and latter prophets. So that makes his argument even stronger because of the places from which 
he gets his information from. I mean, he could have just said, look, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. All bets are off. But he doesn't do that. He actually sort of condescends to the rabbinic way, which he wants to argue against using their own methodology. So it's really quite, it's almost like we get a, you know, can you imagine what he was like as a 12-year-old arguing and reasoning with the rabbis or the scribes in the temple? We're getting a sense of how he might have done that by seeing a full-blown argument that, and I don't mean fighting with words, I mean reason for believing something, and he gives us a sound basis for believing in something through this argumentation. So, um, a very a powerful passage uh, in that regard. Now, in paragraph 51 is the third Sabbath controversy. See there? I mean, he's picking these areas so as to challenge Pharisaical law. Here's the healing of a man w- with a withered hand. Now, here's a kind of a fun thing to take a look at. Look at how Matthew... Mark, Matthew, and Luke recorded. In verse 1, Mark says, And he, Yeshua, entered the synagogue. There was a man there with his hand withered. Matthew records that he departed thence, went into the synagogue. Behold, a man having a withered hand. But look what Luke does. And it came to pass on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man there with his right hand withered. So you got the doctor, you know, who's really paying attention to greater details than the other guys. They just say, hey, I have a withered hand. And he says, it's the right hand, you know. Okay, it's the right hand. You know, Matthew and Mark, it's the right hand, fine. But for the doctor, well, he's, he's concerned with those details. Just kind of a fun thing to take note of. And um, if you look at Matthew's account <clears throat> in verse 10, we note that, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful, pharisaically or mosaically, is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? But look why they ask him. They're not looking to say, maybe we need to reconsider our understanding. They're looking because they want to accuse him. So they know that they're setting him, you know, Matthew is telling us they were setting him up for an, a reason, an opportunity to accuse him. Now, Yeshua then is going to remind them that even according to Pharisaic law, he says in uh, Matthew's account, verse 11. And he said unto them, what man shall there be, I like this phrase, of you. So he's talking to you as Pharisees, right? He's saying, what man among you who embrace Pharisaical tradition, there could be scribes there too, whatever, that shall have one sheep, and if this fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it? And lift it out. So he used the Kol Vahomer argument, you know, from the lesser to the greater. And he says, how much more then? You see, Paul does that a lot. How much more so then? But he says, how much more then is a man of more value than a sheep? So he remind. first of all, what he does, he reminds them that even according to the Pharisaical law, if a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, you can pull it out. And then he says, he uses the Kol Vahomer argument from the greater to the lesser to the greater. How much more important is a person, a human being, than a sheep? And thus he says, acts of mercy are permitted on the Sabbath day. And thus he heals them. According to Mosaic law, according to the Pharisees, acts of necessity 
and of mercy are permissible. So, act of necessity to eat. Thus, the disciples are not guilty of violating the Sabbath because it's necessary that you eat. And they didn't have frozen dinners in those days, so it meant they had to prepare their food. That's what they were doing. Acts of mercy are also permitted. Therefore, it's right to heal someone on the Sabbath. Those individuals that think they are more righteous when they fast on a fast day, say Yom Kippur, though they are extremely sick or whatever and need to eat, are not obeying the law but are actually violators of it because they are not honoring them, their bodies as they are ones created in the image of God. And thus they are actually violating the Sabbath by not honoring their bodies, that is to say, not taking care of it by eating and nourishing it and strengthening it to the best of their ability. So when they think, oh, i got to fast, but you're sick, you're not impressing God and you're not doing the right thing. So three results from these Sabbath controversies. Uh, oh, and by the way, just so that we can just take a look at this. Uh, if you look at Luke's account, it's very interesting in verse 8. It says, they asked him this, that they might f- see a way to accuse him, but he knew their thoughts. So that's kind of interesting too, because it's not just he surmised. But these are glimpses into the divine nature of our Messiah. He did not just surmise this reason, that's what they were thinking. He knew their thoughts. And it says, <clears throat> and Yeshua said unto them, I ask you, is it lawful? Uh, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> in in Math, Mark's account, when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved at their hardening of their hearts. You know? That's kind of an interesting thing, too. We don't read too often where you read Yeshua gets angry. And so don't think that anger is necessarily sinful. You know, Paul even says, be angry, but don't sin by allowing your anger to fester. But there is a place for righteous indignation, righteous anger. Sometimes we may be confused by that. Yeshua never is. But the point is, here, he was angry with them that they were questioning helping somebody else. And then he was not only angered, he was particularly grieved, disappointed, saddened that they would not be compassionate to a person in need. Good things for us to think about because that's what God would want from us to the best of our ability. There's always a balance, you know, always a balance. If every wealthy person gave away all they had, they could not help anyone else. So there's no call by the Lord to become, to put oneself in poverty by giving away all you have. You know, so when he says if you have two coats, he doesn't say give them both away. He says share. That's the point he's making. Help. But sometimes you can't help. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm being callous and I'm lacking compassion. It's also interesting, Paul says, if a person doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So that requires a certain amount of discernment. When is somebody taking advantage and expecting when they shouldn't be? They should go get a job. Now, I realize we're at a bad, the, uh, a bad economic thing, so don't misunderstand me if you lost your job and you're in economic straits. I'm not addressing those kind of complexities. But I am saying, and I think I saw a, a show, I don't know, Stossel. Did anyone see that? 
and he would go and he would be begging on the streets. And uh, then there would be those that, to see how much he would make. He was making $50 an hour just begging, you know. And then there were other people that were lying, you know, saying to people, um, you know, just got off a bus at Seattle. I'm, you know, uh, hurting. Can you help me? And they lived right around the corner, beautiful home. And then they'd dress up to go shopping with your money, you know, and uh, leading people astray. And in one instance, um, what, what, what was I going to say? Um, Oh, in one instance, he would say to people, uh, listen, if you're willing to come over to my house, I'll pay you to do some work in my yard. Everyone said no. Why should I do that except one person? The guy did come. He showed up. He had him clean up his yard. It took him like five hours, two hours, something like that. He gave him 20 bucks. He said, but he could have been making 50 bucks an hour by begging. You know? So there's nothing illegal about begging either. But the point is, Paul says, person doesn't work. He doesn't eat. There ought to be a balance between benevolence and also um, expectations. Generally speaking, there are exceptions. I understand that we're not talking about those things. Uh, I don't know. I don't have it right open front. Shouldn't? Does that make a difference, you think? Oh, I see. Oh, that's a good way to look at it. Don't spend things that you don't have. Mm, that's a good point. Then you're stealing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, things to think about, isn't it? Uh, three things from that we conclude from these Sabbath controversies. Luke, verse 11, uh, he says... But they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Yeshua. So one of the things is they were filled or controlled. That's what the word filled means, to be controlled by a sense of madness and anger. And they were determined to uh, do something bad to Messiah to get rid of him. So it has nothing to do with him not delivering them from Rome. It has everything to do with... Him not conforming to rabbinic law and tradition. Second thing, in Matthew verse 14, it says, The Pharisees went out, took counsel against him, how they might destroy him. Second thing is they began to counsel and conspire how they could get rid of him and bring him to an end. And in Mark 6, it says, the third thing, And the Pharisees went out and straightway with the Herodians took counsel against him how they might destroy him. Their conspiring led them to make an alliance with their arch enemies. The Herodians were a Jewish sect, politically motivated, that united with Herod and Roman rule over Israel. The Pharisees certainly objected to Roman rule, and they were not happy with the Herodian line either. But all of that is put on the side when they have um, a mutual enemy in the coming uh, Messiah. Now, if you turn to uh, paragraph 52, we're looking at Mark 3, Matthew 12. We have um, Messiah's authority to heal, I think is what it would be in in uh, in the outline, 
Let me just make sure that's true. Matthew 52, Messiah's authority to heal. And uh, here we are moving into the early part of Yeshua's second year of ministry. Mark 7 tells us Yeshua with his disciples withdrew to the sea, Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude from Galilee followed. And look at this multitude as their multitude, a lot, a lot of people. And look how they are defined. They're ones that came up from Judea. They came up from Jerusalem. So that's really the religious center. So there's some that are attracted from the religious body of Jewish people from those areas. They came from Idumea, which is even further south, desert region. That's where Herod Antipas is from. He's an Idumean. And uh, they came from as far away from beyond the Jordan River. People are coming even from outside the land, not only Jews inside the land and not only Jews. Because then he tells us, and there were some that came from Tyre and Sidon. It's an area of modern-day Lebanon. And later we're going to read of this Syro-Phoenician woman who comes to, you know, says even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. She's not even Jewish, right? So they're coming from outside the land, inside the land. We've got Jews and Gentiles that are seeking, or we're going to see that. We might assume that here, that are coming because uh, they're having heard what great things he had done. And they're coming unto him. And and then in Mark's account, um, we notice this too. Well, let me just back up here. It said, he spoke to his disciples that a little boat should wait on him because of the crowd, lest they should throng him, for he had healed many. So we know that Yeshua is healing. And inasmuch as many as had plagues pressed upon him, that they might touch him. So it looks like, you know, leprosy and all kinds of illnesses. And then get this, and unclean evil spirits, demons, whoever, uh, whensoever they beheld him, they fell down before him, and they cried, saying, You're the Son of God. And in each time, he charges them that they should not make him known. So more and more demons are also recognizing who he is. And, uh, but every time, he refuses to accept any testimony from them, which makes sense. And then in paragraph 53, we have his choosing of the twelve. Look at Luke's account. Again, a doctor. He's very precise, but it just amazes me how Luke, the physician... The empiricist is so uh, enamored with spiritual things, the work of the Spirit of God, who he makes reference to over and over again, and prayer is a major part of his present presenting of Messiah and the work of Paul and the apostles in the book of Acts. It came to pass in these days that he went out into the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to the Lord. That in anticipation of the choosing of the disciples. Now keep this in mind. Yeshua, we're just told, there were multitudes of disciples. There are many that came after him that were following him. Of that whole multitude, he's going to whittle them down to 12. Whom he's going to choose to be his inner circle of followers. I, you know, it's again, mysterious stuff. The Lord choose. You say, why did he choose that guy? We have no... No idea, but he chose those 12. In some sense, that's true of us too. You know, the Lord has chosen us. We are his elect from every nation. 
Um, and we cannot water down that prerogative of the Lord to choose his own. And whatever we want to make of that, uh, we ought to be grateful. You know, we may not like everything about, well, what does that mean? For what about free will? I mean, all those are very interesting questions. But the bottom line is, thank you. You know, I mean, that's why we say, thank you, Lord. Because if it was left up to me, I certainly wouldn't choose him. None of us will. But God was gracious to us. And to think those 12, man, they had to be thinking, wow, the Lord picked us. You know, heightens the responsibility to follow him. Also, the costs in uh, betraying him. But it also says something about the grace and privilege uh, that is theirs. And that's true for us as well. We need to see ourselves in something of that light. But he spends all night in prayer. So again, you know, don't think that his choosing of the 12 was uninformed any more than the choosing of us is uninformed. And he names them. This is interesting. See, sometimes we don't catch these little things. But look, he says, And when it was day, he called his disciples, and he, cho- and he chose from them 12. So he's got all these disciples. He chooses 12, and among them, he names them apostles. See, Disciples and apostles are not interchangeable necessarily. They are in the case of these 12, but not in the case of all. All disciples are not apostles. And so a disciple, the word disciple means a learner. An apostle means a sent one. The difference between a disciple and an apostle is the apostles are given authority that the disciples are not. And when we look at Mark's account, we get um, three criteria that are associated with them as apostles, but not as disciples. If you look at verse 14, the apostles would be with him. So the difference is disciples may not be with him all the time. The twelve were always with him. So there were some disciples that would come and go. Some would be on call, and we'll see some of those. Um, but these 12, they were with them all the time. Second thing Mark tells us, this is all 14 and 15. The second thing he says, that he might send them forth to preach. It was the apostles that were given the right, the authority, to proclaim his message. And there were two, me- two parts to the message. Here's the Messiah. The kingdom is at hand. The same message he proclaimed, they are given authority to proclaim. That isn't to say the other disciples didn't talk about Messiah, but they were given authority to do so. The others were not. And the third thing is they had authority to cast out demons. The other disciples were not given that authority. Did they do so? Maybe. Perhaps we do read on one occasion these people are doing the same things we're doing. And he says, well, if they're not against us, they're for us, you know, that kind of thing. So we know that that was occurring. But these were given authority to do that. So there's a distinction. And then we are told the names of the disciples. So let me share those with you. First of all, and some of them have more than one name. So the first of our apostles is Simon. Shimon. That's his Hebrew name. His Greek name is Petros, Peter. 
His Aramaic name is Cephas. So those are, that's him. Those are his three names. He is the son of Yochanan. The second disciple that is mentioned is Andrew. Andrew and Peter, also known as Simon and Cephas, are brothers. And so that is our first of three pairs of brothers among the twelve. So the first is Peter, the second is Andrew. The third is John, or Yochanan, grace of God, gift of God. Natan, Nathan. Isn't it grace? Oh, so grace. Something like that. Pardoned one that has received grace. Yes. <laughs> okay. And the second is James. Of course, that's Jacob, Yaakov. The Greek is Yakabas. So it's Jacob. Now, John and James both, that's our second set of brothers, they are sons of Zebedee and Salome. That's the Greek word, or Shulamite. So we have Peter and Andrew, John and James. Our fifth disciple is Philip. His name means lover of horses. The sixth disciple is Nathaniel, who's also referred to as Bartholomew. But Bartholomew is a title. Bar means son of. And so it means he's the son of Talmai. So his name is Nathaniel, the son of Talmai. The seventh disciple is Thomas. That's his Hebrew name. His Greek name is Didymus. And it means twin. So he had a brother. But he's not named among the disciples. Our eighth disciple is Matthew. He's also, his Hebrew name is Levi. Or his other name, Levi. And he's referred to as the son of Alphaeus. And then we have James. Sometimes referred to as James the Less. Because he is not as highly regarded as James, the brother of John. So James, he also is referred to as the son of Alphaeus, but it's not the same Alphaeus as Levi's. Otherwise, they would be referred to as brothers. And then we have Judas, also referred to as Thaddeus, or Judah. Now, Judah... Judas, Thaddeus, and James are both sons of Alphaeus. Those two are brothers. And thus they are a third pair of brothers. And then the eleventh disciple is Simon, not to be confused with Peter. Simon the Zealot. Of course, the Zealots were those that were actively opposing Rome. And these were guys that had the short swords that they'd hide in their robes. And when they're in those narrow streets of Jerusalem or Israel, if they can stick a Roman soldier or guard, they would did it, do it and run on their way. 
The Pharisees also opposed Rome, but they were passive resistors. The Zealots were active resistors. And, of course, guys like Matthew were, uh, what would you call them? They would be, um, what's the word? Uh, What's that? Collaborators with the Romans because they served as their tax collectors. So I wonder what it must have been like when Simon the Zealot and Matthew were asked to sit together and have lunch. You know, that must have been like wild. You know, I'm sure when they first got together, you know, they must have been talking to the Messiah. You, are you sure that he really believes in you? He's a tax collector. Are you sure he really believes in you? He's a murderer. And then the last, of course, is Judas Iscariot, always referred to as the betrayer, because that's how he is known. Iscariot means a man of Kiriath, which is a village, the village of Kiriath. Now, if you have your harmonies, this is really kind of a cool thing. Take a look at page 271. You might like to read this section in fuller detail. But on 271, he has these wonderful special notes, the four lists of the 12 apostles. And we learn something when we line them up as he does for us. So if you have that, take a look at it. Page 271. And you see the list of Messiah's disciples or apostles. If you look at the top, you've got Matthew's list, uh, excuse me, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and in the book of Acts, how the disciples are listed. And notice number one, in all four accounts, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and Acts, Peter is always listed first. If you go down to number five, you'll see that in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and Acts, Philip is always fifth. And if you go down to number nine, you'll see James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed ninth in all three accounts. Now, if you look at one other thing, if you look at the names listed in under two, three, and four, in all accounts, they're all the same. Different order, but they're all the same persons. And then if you look at 7 and 8, you'll see Matthew and Thomas are always listed. And then if you look at numbers 10, 11, and 12, those are all the same. So it also appears that what the Messiah did was that when he chose his 12, he also broke them up into three sections. And he gave each one of these individuals leadership over them. So Peter led James, John, and Andrew. Those are two brothers, pairs of brothers. And Philip led Bartholomew and, or Thomas, and Matthew. And James, the son of Alphaeus, led Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. So now we get a sense of his leadership style. And you can read the rest of that. But it looks like he chose the 12, and then he set up some who were particularly to be mindful and responsible for those who are under them. And that's the way of discipleship. You know, people need to bring people under their wing who have authority, leadership, and to lead them in godliness, paths of righteousness, um, in the following of Messiah. 
Now, in paragraph 54, um, we have the beginning of the, the beginning of the section that is what is oftentimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which gives us its geography, but it doesn't really help us with respect to its theme. And the purpose of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, is really to reveal to us Messiah's authority to interpret the law. That's what's going on. Now let me just say a couple of things about this. We're just going to get into the opening salvo of it, and then we'll call it. And then we'll spend more time on it the next time. A little, just a little historical reflection uh, on this. First of all, the Jewish people um, longed for the coming of the Messiah to establish his kingdom. And the promise of his coming was embodied in the Hebrew Scriptures, the law and the prophets, former and latter, as well as in the writings. And what, and you know, it's funny that we're at this part because Sunday, and you've got to come Sunday because the most important words in all of history have ever been written is what we're going to look at. And that's Romans 1, 16 and 17. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is, is revealed the righteousness of God. The just shall live by faith. I have no doubt in my mind that those are the most important words ever written in all of history. Certainly, it's the theme of the book of Romans. It is the heart and soul of true and genuine spirituality, religion, the heart and soul of true, of a true relationship with the living God. So, um, and the issue is, what constitutes the righteousness of God? What is it? And why is it so critical? And I've just been loving studying this, you know. So I can't wait to share what I've learned thus far. I still have some more time. But what I've learned thus far, and that's what I'm going to focus on uh, on Sunday. And we're also going to do something in the service that's going to be really pretty cool, too. But anyway, um, here, Messiah, and I didn't realize this as I was coming to it, but here, the Messiah is going to demonstrate his authority to interpret the law. And what he's going to do in this section is reveal what is meant by true righteousness. Because what the prophets tell us is righteousness is the means by which one enters the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul says too. The righteousness of God is revealed. Why is that so important? Because no one can enter the presence of God without the righteousness of God. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews will say, without holiness, it's impossible to see, see God. That's why the law is going to say, be holy as I am holy. He's not talking about righteous living. He's talking about the righteousness of God. And without it, we cannot see God. We cannot be with God. Thus, salvation is in reality acquiring and possessing the righteousness of God. And thus, the reason why Romans 1, 16, 17 is so powerful is because God has given us his righteousness. And if he doesn't do that, we cannot stand in God's presence. See, everyone thinks the way to get to God's presence is be good. 
the way to enter God's presence is to have his righteousness. And that's not something you can do. It's not something you can achieve. But it is something you can receive and something you can ultimately acquire and possess. And for some reason, maybe because I'm, I studied it, but for some reason, this was like brand new to me. You know, like really? That I have acquired God's own righteousness? And if that was not the case, I couldn't stand in his presence? I always thought I'm saved because I believed in him. But that's not why I'm saved. I'm saved because God's righteousness has come to bear on me. You know? So that's what, want, that's what we're going to talk about. But what's going on here is the prophets have said, without God's righteousness, you cannot enter into the presence of God. So therefore, the Pharisees were saying, this is the kind of righteousness you need to enter heaven. And the kind of righteousness the Pharisees, rabbinical rabbinical law, oral tradition, oral law, Mishnaic law, teaches is a broad kind of righteousness. Thus they would say, all Israel has a share in the world to come. Messiah is going to say, and this is why he's so angry with the Pharisees and so combative, because their understanding of righteousness is not the righteousness that the prophets and Moses spoke about, and thus it is not a righteousness which will result in his people entering heaven. And that's why he's so concerned. And that's why he's so combative. And that's why he wants to distinguish what he is teaching from what they are teaching. Because what they are teaching will not get you to heaven. Will not get you right with God. So he now is going to teach us how to rightly understand the law. Because in rightly understanding it, you will then understand the righteousness of God, and as a consequence, can receive it so as to enter into eternal life. For after all, that's why he's come. I came to give life, and to give it more abundantly, and to give it eternally. And it will not come by Pharisaical Judaism, or any other kind of religious thing. But he's concerned with his people's uh, religious teaching that's going on. So, So let me just go through this, and then we'll come. So... Um, the key verse is Matthew 5.20. I say unto you, except your righteousness. See, there's that key again. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So Yeshua is going to say, broad is the way that leads to destruction. All Israel has a share in the world to come. You embrace that, you're in trouble. The way into God's presence is narrow. And it necessitates me. So to reject Messiah is to reject the way. For after all, he is the way. And that way is narrow. It does not encompass a lot. It encompasses little. And broad will lead to destruction. So Matthew 5.20 is the key. And Yeshua states in 5.20 his rejection of Rabbinical teaching on two counts. First, Yeshua rejects Pharisaism as having the correct interpretation of the righteousness of the Mosaic law. He says they're misunderstanding it. And he says that later. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he spoke of me. But what he told them was their 
Mishnaic laws, their Pharisaical understanding, their uh, rabbinic interpretations obscured what Moses said about him. And therefore, they weren't believing Moses. They were believing their laws above Moses. And the second thing he, reason he rejects is having the standard of righteous. Uh, he rejects Pharisaism is because he rejects their having the standard of righteousness which would qualify one to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their standard was too low. Their standard was don't break this fence hedge around the law. But that's too low. The standard is much higher and much graver than that. Sure, because they're following him, yeah. right? But he, but the prophets even say, "Woe to the shepherds that scattered the sheep." There is a certain element of responsibility leaders have, and the role they play in guidance, and they're held to a higher standard. It appears. Who? I think he's nailing them because they are leading people away from God. That's the, that's, I, I don't know about the, I understand, but I don't think that um, minimizes the responsibility leaders have in contributing to the um, difficulty in, I don't want to say hearing God's voice clearly, but understanding God's revelation clearly. Because people are sheep. And, you know, he says there are, there are sh- wolves in sheep's clothing, he speaks about. Even, uh, I mean, Yeshua speaks about. So, yes, people are responsible, but also people are followers and there is a heightened judgment woe to the shepherds that scatter the sheep um, and yet uh, it is also true that if people can break from that uh, enslavement to false shepherds that they will find him the thing about the false shepherds was they were claiming to know God in a way that the sheep did not. And thus it became more difficult for them to seek God. And, you know, when you read about some of these accounts, you have these, you know, like the man who is blind. His family are really scared to explain what has happened. They say, hey, talk talk to him. You know, he's old enough. And they don't want to deal with him uh, because they're, they're intimidated. And I guess that plays a role. 
Um, okay, so let me see if I can bring this to, to a conclusion here so we can just cover a couple of things. Um, what the Sermon on the Mount is not. How are we on time, by the way? Thank you. Can I go to a quarter after? Would that be okay? Would, you won't revolt on me? If you will, I'll call it. You know, it's not like I feel I have to. Let me just comment a couple of things. And Michelle, you'll you'll do one of these. Okay. I need one of them. So first of all, what the Sermon on the Mount, what this uh, interpretation of the law by Messiah is not. First of all, it is not a constitution of the Messianic kingdom. This is not the laws of the kingdom. It's important that we get an understanding of what he's doing. Remember, what he's doing is he's showing his authority to interpret the law. He's not stating this is now the commandments for you to follow. And these are not, it's not the constitution for the messianic kingdom. Second thing it is not, it is not a way of salvation. You know, oh, we're saved if we obey these things. Salvation is always by grace through faith. It's not a works-oriented and the third thing is, it is not a statement of ethics for today. This is not um, a, in other words, uh, a statement about what's right and wrong for believers to be doing today. This is his authority to interpret the law. And we're learning, thus, what true righteousness is about. It's not, a, it's not a new series of commandments that we are now obligated to observe. It is a method, a presentation to us of how the law is to be understood and interpreted so as to reveal true righteousness. So, um, so what is it then? And here's a, a statement I think would be good for us to know that. This is the Messiah's interpretation of the true righteousness of the law in contrast to the Pharisees' interpretation of the righteousness of the law. And that's what he's doing. Now, notice some of these things that come up that indicate this. For example, turn to uh, page 50 in the Harmony. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5. If you notice verse 21, it says, you have heard that it was said. Then if you look at verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said. And then you see in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said. In verse 38, it says, you have heard that it was said. In verse 43, it says, you have heard that it was said. When you read lines like that, he is making reference to the oral law. Remember, the oral law is not written down until later under the leadership of Judah Hanasi, and we talked about the historical part. At this point, it is orally transmitted only, and thus it truly is what they have heard. So it's a reference to the oral tradition or the Pharisaical understanding. When you read um, statements like, it is written, now we're dealing with what was found in the written text. So what Yeshua does is he pulls out a commandment from the written law 
And he shows a contrast between the interpretation that the Pharisees provide of the righteousness of the command and then he provides an understanding of what true righteousness was meant to consist of. So he pulls out a command and then he uses it as a means of contrasting what it is meant to convey and what the oral tradition was saying it conveyed. Now let's let's go back, page 48. Look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 1. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came unto him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them. Notice, first of all, he sat down. This is the rabbinic tradition to teach sitting. And we saw this every time he's gone into the synagogue. He stands up to read. He sits down to teach. He does the same thing here. And notice that this event of his teaching of the interpretation of the righteousness of the law occurs after the twelve are called as apostles. And there is an interest in the uh, claims of Messiah. And thus, Luke's account tells us multitudes flock to him. It says, verse 17, great multitudes of his disciples, great number of the people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. He heals them, he casts out spirits, and all the multitude are seeking to touch him. And he's instructing the disciples which are, and those with the disciples. So there's a great multitude that is gathered. And the first thing he does in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, he gives us the characteristics of genuine or true righteousness. And so what does he tell us? In verse 3, he says, blessed. The word blessed means happy, joyful, fulfilled. And the first thing he says is blessed or happy or joyful are those that are poor in spirit. By poor in spirit, he means those who are not prideful. Those who are right and have a proper, a right and proper evaluation of themselves before God. And thus, when they have a proper um, evaluation of themselves before God, they realize their need for him. So blessed are those who are not prideful but are accurate about their status before God. Second thing he says in verse 4 is, Blessed are those who mourn. That is, those that develop a sensitivity to sin that leads to confession of it. And thus they mourn over the fact of their status before the Lord. And then in verse 5, he says, this is the nature of true righteousness. True righteousness consists in not being prideful. True righteousness consists in having an accurate perception of oneself with respect to sin that permeates our world and our own particular life. And thus we are confessors of that and repenters of it. In verse 5, he says, blessed are the meek. That is, those that have a quiet confidence in God. doesn't mean those that are wimpy. It means those that have a quiet confidence. They have a recognition that God is in authority and He's overall and He's sovereign and there's a willingness to be submissive to that authority. And thus we are meek in that sense, submissive to Him. And then he says in verse 6, Blessed are those are happy, joyful, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, who seek to live 
consistently with respect to the absolute standards and not try to put a hedge around them and think that by obeying the hedge, we're obeying the law. We're not obeying the law. We're obeying a whole new religion of laws. These first four statements of happiness have to do with our relationship to God. Poor in spirit with respect to a right evaluation of ourselves before God. Mourning that sin that alienates us from God. Having a quiet confidence in God's authority. And seeking to live in a way that is consistent with his character. The second series have to do with our relation to others. This is not unlike the Ten Commandments. The first four or so deal with our relationship with God. Then when we get to honor your father and mother, the rest deal with our relationship to others. In relation to others, he says in verse 7, that we that uh, blessed or happy or joyful are the merciful, to be compassionate, to be able to respond to the needs of others. Not like the Pharisees that said, you can't heal on the Sabbath. They lacked mercifulness. In verse 8, he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, those that are honest and operate out of proper motivations. Not like the religious leaders of his own day that had wrong motivations. Sometimes you see, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. Wrong motivation to be superior or to be thought of as superior. Standing on street corners so everyone can see us. Making broad the phylacteries so that you're carrying around these, you know, the big phylacteries, uh, or the tefillin that would be on your head and on your arms. So that people uh, attribute something to you that they ought not. Look how holy this man must be. Look how righteous he must be. In verse 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, those that bring about a state of unity among believers and seek not to cause strife or conflict. In verse 10, he speaks about blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That when one lives consistently, In connection with others, they may be uh, maligned by others because of their genuine righteousness. No, 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 I can't live like you would expect me to live because that's not genuine righteousness. That's just a religiosity of some kind. And although here the focus is on the Pharisaism of his day, this certainly is true in churches throughout our land today as well, both Protestant and Catholic. And then verse 11, he adds a very interesting one, something different, because here he says, Blessed are you when men shall reproach you for my sake. And so now he becomes the center, pivotal uh, point. Those who accept his Messiahship will be rejected by the larger Jewish community and persecuted by them. So we are not to be surprised by that. That when we share our faith with Jewish people, not always, there are those that are anxious to find God. That's that faithful remnant. But let us not be deluded into thinking that the majority of the Jewish community would look at us and say, wow, we're so glad you're here. You know, but that is the turf we we tread. That's the turf we walk on. We have to be sharing our faith with his people, even though we know the majority of them are going to reject it. And as a consequence, will not be happy with us and might persecute us. 
for it. We don't look for the persecution, but it might come. So there are those who attain a righteousness of the law, both in relation to God and to others. So let me finish this up, and here we'll close here, and we'll pick it up uh, on the bottom of 49 next time. But let me just say this. While Messiah says these wonderful things about the blessedness, the happy state, the joyous reality of manifesting true righteousness, he does pronounce woes upon those who do not so attain it. Now, whenever you see woe, that's like bad. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, he can say bad things, but when he proceeds it with woe, it's like really bad. So, he says four woes. They're found in Luke's account. Verse 24. But woe unto you that are rich. He he pronounces a woe to those who merely are seeking wealth. Because they're seeking the benefits of this life and not the life to come. You don't have to be wealthy to be seekers after wealth. The second thing he says, verse 25, Woe unto you that are full now. He's pronouncing a woe on those who are seeking self-satisfaction. And thus they fail to show mercy or compassion to others. In verse 3 he says, Woe unto you that laugh now. Those that merely seek selfish merriment that just seek to find satisfaction, joy, fun in the things of this world and or the things that our society can provide us with. It's not like we can't enjoy God's creation. It's to say that that becomes the uh, core of our value. And then he pronounces a fourth woe in verse 26 of Luke. And woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, those that seek a reputation. So if you're looking for money, if you're looking for a lot of letters after your name, if you're looking for hedonistic joys, or looking to get to the top of the ladder, woe to you if that is what your life is to consist of. Because our life is meant to consist of true righteousness, not a false righteousness. Nothing wrong with those things. But when they become the definition of what is valuable and what defines us, then we are in a a bad state. I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it Sunday or what, but when I looked at that producer's, did I mention that Sunday? This producer's, uh, I don't know what you call it, like sort of description online kind of a thing. And it had favorite quotes. And I thought about, you know, how hard it's got to be trying to make it in the Hollywood scene. And be a person of faith. 
how hard it really must be. I mean, on the East Coast, you hear those things. You say, eh, what's, so, what's going on? It's like any other job. You know, you have to. But when I read these quotes, something struck me to say um, there's something very um, almost contrary to the natural impulse of uh, having a connection with God in the Hollywood scene. That doesn't mean we can't venture in and take it by storm and all that stuff. So please, if that's your bag, you know, you're going to have to learn how to do it, you know, in a way in which you don't compromise who you are. There's compromise in all places. But when I read these quotes, it just sort of hit me like, this has got to be a tough world to try to um, exist, coexist in. And the quote was, there are two of them. One was... What is it that I like so much about producing or Hollywood or whatever? Did I say, he put it this way, did I say something about the money? And then he said, no, the the best thing about it is when, uh, the best thing about it is you, is when you get to see the people you hate fail. And I thought, yeah, like, wow, you know, ouch. If that's just him, well, then I guess Hollywood's an okay place. But the sense was, I don't think that's just him, you know. And then it was another thing. Uh, I always like to tell those that are new to the industry or something like that, don't be afraid to fail. Because when they fail, it makes me look better. <laughs> and, um, whoa. You know, if your life revolves around um, succeeding on the basis of the failures of others, because you become more wealthy, you become more, uh, you know, filled with more merriment, or because you gain a greater reputation, or you attain a greater status. You know, that is like the antipathy of what it means to be a follower of the Messiah that has true righteousness, characterized by mercy, characterized by mourning over our own inadequacies. You know, it's just so contrary. So I'm glad that I'm here, and I pray those of you that and others that are in the industry, as it were, I really pray that God will give me words of encouragement and um, direction, you know, guidance to help navigate those very treacherous waters. Because the other side of the coin is when you can navigate those waters and produce things that the world, very literally, gets a chance to see or hear or observe or encounter, what an incredible influence that could be for uh, our Messiah as well. So it's a tough place to go, but it might have some great rewards if you can do it. So I pray God might give me wisdom as a, a shepherd in this, cra- in this sea um, to be helpful if possible. Well, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness, and we're grateful, Lord, for your word to us. May we truly be 
ones who receive and acquire true righteousness. For those who do uh, are promised great joy in your presence one day. Be with each and every one who has come this night. Grant them a safe trip home. And I pray also where healing is necessary, Lord, that your healing hand of mercy and grace would rest powerfully upon them. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.